First Peter chapter 1. While you're doing that, thank you again for the warm welcome I've had today. Uh, some good conversations at the door and afterwards. Uh, let me explain my strategy about preaching to a congregation for the first time, what I'm preaching on and why I'm preaching on it. You know, a lot of times in Christian sermons, there are a lot of to-dos. And actually in seminaries, you're often taught that if there is no imperative verb, then you've not really applied the text. I don't really think that's true. I think we are in error, not only in our actions, but in our thoughts and our understandings. So I think that we correctly preach the Word of God when we preach what it says. And sometimes, and with First Peter, when you get further on, there are imperative things. There are commands, things we are to do. But interestingly, although they're in a very practically difficult situation, these early Christians are not first advised in what they're to do by the Apostle Peter. They're advised in how they're to think, what their understanding is to be. And so I, this, this weekend, have uh, this day, decided to, to bring you two messages from early in First Peter, uh, trying to help in thinking what God is and what he has called us to be and do. Uh, I think that's a strategy that's good for us, and we'll think about that more in a moment. It means there won't necessarily be any huge takeaways that you're supposed to do differently tomorrow morning, but if you can be aided in meditating on and worshiping God for what he has made you to be in Christ, then that will be a good way to have spent the Lord's Day, I think, together. So tonight I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We left off this morning. We looked through verse 9. I want us to look at 10, 11, and 12 tonight. Again, let me just remind you what the situation was that Peter was writing to. They were young Christians. They were confused by suffering. They thought if they had begun to follow the right way, then surely life should be getting noticeably and evidently better. Now, here, all of a sudden, it seems like I'm having trouble. And I'm having trouble right after I've become a Christian. So what's going on? Well, Peter wrote them and told them as we were thinking about this morning that God was saving them. But here he also says some more. And I want us to hear what he goes on to say, beginning at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would give us such angelic longings tonight. We pray that you would create in us a desire and a hunger for you and your word, and that you would fill us. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. I love that last phrase. Isn't that amazing there in verse 12? Things into which angels long to look. Christians are in a privileged position. Christians are in a position that even it seems like the angels themselves envy. The angels want to look into these things. It's a, the idea of someone sort of leaning over and peering down a well to find what's at the bottom, you know, straining to see through the darkness. There is an intentness that is implied in it. One can almost see the celestial cherubs peering over the cloud edge, you know, looking down intently, amazed 
and wondering at the spectacle that Christians are privileged to know and enjoy. And our privileges are many. But I want to close this Lord's Day with you by thinking together about some of what Peter says here about our privileged status. And I think that Peter's main point in these verses is the mind-blowing truth that Christians are privileged to be served and to be served even by the prophets. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through this. Look with me again, beginning at verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Perhaps you've come tonight feeling that nobody ever serves you. You spend all your time serving everyone else. Well, Christian, look again at verse 10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, as Peter says here, as to this salvation. Now, that's the salvation we were thinking of this morning. Uh, Peter's just spoken of it up there in verses 5 and 9. It's the salvation that we Christians are even now in the process of receiving. They were searching after God's promised gift of salvation. These prophets prophesied of God's grace, of the unmerited gift that was to come. And they were attempting to find out the time of this. This is the, the prophets were, were looking forward to it. They were, they were longing for the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. Now, the words here used about searching and trying to find out could be used about digging mines to obtain treasure. And this time that they were looking for, the time, the season, is the season of our salvation that has begun now in Christ. If you read through Peter's little letter, you find that this is the time which culminates in judgment on the one hand, in chapter 4, and the full revelation of our salvation, of our being lifted up in the promised due time in chapter 5. It is the time which has now begun for Christians. Well, Peter knew these prophecies well. As Luke reminds us, after Jesus' resurrection, when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and listen to the disciples' incomprehension, Jesus said, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, the Messiah, have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. Now that's in Luke 24. And did you notice that the same two phrases Peter used here to describe what the prophets had predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, are what Jesus said to the disciples there in Luke 24, 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Friends, if you've never noticed this sort of suffering, then glory theme, you'll begin noticing it now as you read Isaiah, as you read Luke and Acts. 
as you read through First Peter. Later, Jesus said to all of the disciples, later in Luke 24, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. And, of course, it was Peter who not long after this preached the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. And how did he begin that sermon? Well, he began by quoting an Old Testament prophecy about the salvation that was to come. And he was quoting from the prophet Joel. And then in Acts chapter 3, when Peter was talking to the crowd, he referred to Christ's resurrection in Acts chapter 3 by saying, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Christ would suffer. Now, this is such a striking example. Let's, let's turn and read this. Acts chapter 3. I'll pick it up with verse, with verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your forefathers. Peter goes on. You know, it's often been a temptation for Christians to undervalue or ignore the Old Testament. And yet the value of the Old Testament should be clear just from these few verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. I mean, we have to remember for the early Christians, when they refer to the Scriptures, what are they talking about? Are they talking about 1 John? Well, no, not mainly. They're talking about Genesis through Malachi. They're talking about the Old Testament. That's the Bible that they had to know that they had learned. Remember, after all, Christianity was a Jewish movement. Did you ever notice how much the apostles quoted the Old Testament? Well, for us, we need to hear and understand that the New Testament is not an about face in God's plan for his people. No, Paul in Galatians makes it clear that the Old Testament was always grace-oriented. He makes it so clear that the Old Testament never taught that people could justify themselves by obeying the law. No, brothers and sisters, when you study the Old Testament, you will be encouraged in the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus himself taught that the law and the prophets taught about him, about how he should fulfill them. Salvation since the fall has always been brought about by God's grace using the instrument of faith and trust in God for the fulfillment of our obligations by another. The Old Testament doesn't defeat this understanding Indeed, it is from the Old Testament that this very understanding arises. From the sacrifices to the Passover lamb, from the offered sacrifice of Isaac to the suffering servant in Isaiah, the Old Testament teaches us that salvation must be from something beyond ourselves, something beyond our own works. Salvation must be from God. Growing in understanding the Old Testament means growing in understanding God's grace. Well, then, when we do turn to the New Testament, 
I think then with a knowledge of the Old Testament, we see much more clearly the significance and the resonance of some of the things that are said there. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's often been put. As Spurgeon said, the prophets foretold what the apostles reported. The seers looked forward and the evangelists looked backward. Their eyes meet at one place. They see eye to eye and both behold the cross. The Holy Spirit and these Old Testament prophets were literally bearing witness beforehand. It is as if he caused them to see what they could not have seen with their physical eyes and to tell about it in their prophecies, that which these Christians hundreds of years later now had heard of and read of. And in doing that, the prophets were serving these Christians. These Christians who were suffering were tempting to be, were being tempted to feel abused, were in fact all the time being served by that mighty band of prophets in the Old Testament, from Moses and Samuel all the way down through Malachi. The word there for serving that he says there in our text, the word there for serving in verse 12, uh, the word there for serving is the word that we know as the word deacon or servant. They were deacons, literally, to these Christians. Uh, perhaps one might think that these prophets in some spiritual ecstasy of inspiration prophesied for themselves, but no. In fact, their prophetic activity, however it came in their own experience, it wasn't for them. It was for others. Their prophetic activity was to serve us. Now, I want to be clear here and get our minds around what's being said. Imagine the long line of those inspired as prophets hundreds of years before Peter's time. Moses and David and Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi, and we could go on and on. All of these prophets of old were really serving these Christians. Why did God do it this way? Why was he stretching out the accomplishment of his plan, the fulfillment of his promise over so many ages with centuries of prophecies before fulfilling them? Well, we can't finally say beyond what he himself has said. But this we can say. When you begin to grasp something of the Old Testament prophecies, of the, of the unity of the prophecies with what actually has come about, it acts as a great confirmation of our faith. That so many, from such a variety of backgrounds, over such a long period, sometimes not being aware of the other one's activity, would prophesy things that were all fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth is a great confirmation. That helps Christians then. It helps us now to know that our salvation is sure and certain. It's been said that the art of banking consists in taking other people's money and using it for your own profit. Well, some people, I think, are tempted to think this about religious leaders as well, as if prophets, particularly prophet, different spelling, from popularity. They win their celebrity and their place in the hall of enduring fame. Well, instead, Peter says these prophets were not there to be served. They were there serving believers. We are the ones who profit by them, by their ministries, by their activities. They weren't doing it to break into the covers of the Bible. 
They were doing it in God's sovereignty to serve you and me if we are children of Abraham by faith, if we are the recipients of these promises. So like the angels then, too, these Old Testament prophets find the Christian believer's position enviable. As Jesus said to the disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Well, what these prophets had prophesied and longed for in Luke 2, Simeon and Anna saw. It's amazing when you begin to have a sense of the length of the history that's recorded in the Old Testament. Then to stumble upon this little story that could almost be lost there in Luke 2 amidst the jostle and crowding of the temple courts as Simeon and Anna look upon what they understand to be the fulfillment of centuries of God's promises as His faithfulness is literally enfleshed in front of them. Well, friends, as Christians, that's the faithfulness fulfilled that we know and know in increasing fullness. And this is a tremendous encouragement. It was to be for these Christians Peter was writing to. It is to be for us tonight as we feed on Christ by faith in our hearts. We know more than the prophets in our minds and in our experiences. We, if we are Christians, are in a more privileged position, I think I can say, than John the Baptist himself. That which some of the greatest figures in the Bible longed for, literally could only dream of, you and I possess in increasing measure. I wonder how you feel about your Bible study. I wonder if to you it's a dry duty. If you feel sort of enslaved or even trapped by it. Something that you have to do. That black book is laying over there at the beginning of your morning and you have to feed that with some time or else when things go wrong during the day you feel guilty. You almost have to end up serving it. Friends, that's entirely the opposite of the message that Peter is conveying to these Christians. Now he's saying these These are serving you by the richness of the record of God's prophecies of His promises. And now with the New Testament, we even have of their fulfillment. I have a lot of books in my library, as I think most ministers do. And I like to explain to people sometimes that I think of these books as my friends. Because they're all standing there on the shelves waiting to spend all the time with me I want to spend with them. All the time that I have. They're waiting there very politely. Their mouths are closed. But they merely wait me beckoning them off the shelf into my hand to open up and they'll begin to speak to me. And in a very studied fashion, they will give them careful thought to what they want to say and how they want to say it. And they'll counsel me and comfort me and instruct me as much time as I want. They will serve me. Well, friends, even more true is that of these 66 books of the Bible. And these people that are inspired of God's Spirit in the way not even the greatest of the Puritans, not even Richard Sibbs, was inspired by God's Spirit. Peter here, the prophets of the Old Testament, were inspired by God's Spirit for your instruction and mine, for your comfort and counsel and mine, and they, they only await our taking the book off the shelf and reading it with an open mind and an open heart. So we should give ourselves diligently to study their words because we Christians are so privileged to have been served 
by this long line of prophets. But there is one other level of privilege of our being served that's behind even the amazing service of the prophets, and I want us to notice it this evening. We see it here clearly in this passage. You see what it is? Christians are privileged to be served by God himself. You see that in the passage? The Father revealed the truth and sent his Spirit. Twice in verse 12, God is referred to in a roundabout way. It was God who was active in revealing the truth to them. When it says there, it was revealed. And then that reference to the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Those are references to the activity of God. God was actively serving us in revealing truth to the prophets, in sending His Spirit to indwell the gospel preachers. God the Father has served Christians. Also, it was the Holy Spirit who moved the prophets and the preachers. It was He who moved the prophets. Look at verse 11. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was the Holy Spirit who moved the gospel preachers too. Verse 12, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Isn't this extraordinary? God, the Holy Trinity, is serving us. Just as we see back in verse 1, Peter had been sent by Jesus Christ. So here we see in verse 12 that the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven, that it is by God to empower this preaching of the gospel to Christians. This happened initially, of course, at Pentecost, an event which Peter himself could well remember. But this Holy Spirit empowering must also be continually true of gospel preachers. You know, preachers come, preachers stay a while, then preachers go. But we will accomplish nothing apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon Him for blessing and for life. In all of this, God the Spirit has served Christians, and of course, God the Son has served us. Christ suffered and was glorified. You see there in verse 11, God the Son in His suffering and splendor serves Christians. What does Peter say here in verse 11? The Old Testament prophets had predicted the sufferings of Christ. Those are predicted in many places from Genesis to Zechariah. And the glories, the subsequent splendors of Christ And those two are prophesied in many places in the Old Testament, from the marvelous Psalm 2 on through Malachi's last words. Now Christ's sufferings are clear to us, at least mentally. We know what's meant, his rejection, his crucifixion. The reference to Christ's glories may be less immediately clear, but once you look around, it becomes clear, I think, that Christ's glories are his resurrection and ascension, his session at the right hand of God in heaven, and having all power and authority committed to him in the coming final judgment. This pair, then, of suffering and glory, this pair is, as we saw in Luke, apparently the way Jesus would catechize his disciples. That's how he would teach his disciples the Old Testament's teaching about himself. This rhythm in Jesus' own life of suffering, then glory, of suffering, then glory, it was predicted, And it was lived out, and we see it as a constant theme in Peter's letter as he reflects on Christ's suffering and resurrection. And therefore he sees it also as the pattern of the Christian life. 
And there's nothing surprising in it. Again, we don't have time this day to go on into it. But if you go on this evening and read chapter 2, and you read into his instructions there in chapter 2 toward the end about how Christ is our example, he seems to be saying to these young Christians, again, didn't you realize who was calling you to follow him? He bids us to come and take up our cross and follow him. You can't be surprised that you're encountering this in the way of Christian discipleship. The suffering has been revealed, and in our cases, the glory has yet to be fully revealed. But this is the pattern. And so there's no reason to be discouraged like you're heading in the wrong direction. No, in a strange way, if you're suffering for the gospel, this is actually a confirmation that you're headed in the right direction. You see, the basic truth of Christianity is not that we serve God, but that God serves us. Not, of course, that God has to, but he has chosen to. You know, I used to be an agnostic. I was somebody who wasn't sure whether or not there was a God. And I was a fairly obnoxious agnostic. I like to read a lot. I like to sort of assert ideas into other people's space. And part of the way the Lord converted me was by getting me, I think, to read about other religions. And I think I had a modern American kind of assumption that all religions basically teach the same things. The people just dress differently. But as I read about different religions, it became quite clear to me that all religions don't basically teach the same things. Uh, that there were some similarities, there were also some differences. One of the most striking similarities between all the other world religions were all the commands that you had to follow and then the sort of cash-out value that gives you in spiritual terms at the end, though they would call it by different names. When I read the Gospels in curiosity... I noticed immediately that this religion was different. This religion didn't tell me all those things I had to do. This religion majored on telling me what God had already done. I have one friend who summarized it this way. Uh, all the other religions in the world, or well, if you put all the religions in the world together, there are really only two kinds, the religion of do and the religion of done. And all the other religions are of the religion of do. This religion, Christianity, is the religion of done. Well, Peter here very clearly presents Christianity is the religion of what God has done for us. I mean, have you realized that in the songs we've sung today, the songs this evening or this morning? Do you realize what Christ's table here spread for us means? God has loved us amazingly. The Father has created us the Son redeems and sustains us. The Holy Spirit confirms us and has given us new life without end. The basic truth of Christianity is how God has fulfilled all of His promises toward us and served us in our need. Again, as Spurgeon once put it, the Lord proposes to save you because you are miserable and He is merciful. Christians are privileged to be served by God. Yes, these Christians and we Christians may have to suffer for a little while. But note the way of God even in your sufferings and trials. You have some sufferings as a Christian when you're 15. Maybe school teachers, parents, siblings. You have other sufferings for God when you're 30. Trying to figure out what you're going to do, why you didn't get that job. Others come along when you're 50. And the kids didn't work out just as you might have liked. Still others when you're 70. 
as you seem to be more and more lonely at those meetings and still others when you're 85. But God in His goodness has a plan for His followers through all of the sufferings. Luther put it this way, God makes us poor and then rich. Bruises and slays and then heals and restores to life. The devil does just the opposite. That's so good, I'm going to read it again. God makes us poor and then rich, bruises and slays and then heals and restores to life. The devil does just the opposite. Oh, young people heed that. Those promises of immediately what you want are laying there, and that is the mousetrap the devil uses. Be careful. Think carefully before you act. God makes us the point not just of suffering, but He has also served us in the most amazing way. And what a privilege that is. What an encouragement to stand fast and to persevere and to trust Him to bring us into the prosperity He desires for us in His own way and His own time. Matthew Henry said, The suffering time is short, but the glory is everlasting. Well, service is the incarnation of love. Service is the appearance of love, its visage and aspect. Service is what love looks like. And that's what God has done for us. These Christians had been served by angels and preachers, by prophets of old, by God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we are Christians this evening, so have we. Christians are served. Christians are loved. Christians are privileged. So, brothers and sisters, let us be served again this evening to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we come to this table, we pray that you will again remind us of your most radical service of us in Christ. We pray that you would, in your tenderness, cause to put to death our most opposing thoughts to you, our most careless intentions. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bring our hearts under your loving scrutiny and that you would there ravish us with your love. Oh, God, we thank you for your provision for us in Christ. We thank you for its fullness and its completeness, that there is not one of your chosen nor one of our sins that are outside the scope of this sacrifice. We give you praise for the fullness and completeness of your love. And we rejoice in it now this evening through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.